Welcome to the podcast of Thank God It's Friday. I'm Richard Glover, and as you may have noticed, our TGIF regular, Tommy Dean, has been missing from our panel. He's back in America for a couple of months. And while we've missed him on TGIF, he's instead been joining us with a weekly letter from America. So if you're keen on catching up with him, stay listening at the end of this podcast for Tommy Dean's Letter from America. But first, this week's TGIF. We would like to advise that the following program may contain adult themes, occasional nudity, and language that may offend some listeners. Thank God it's... Today, welcome to our third special edition of Thank God It's Friday. I'm Richard Glover, and we've got guests from all over Sydney, the world, and beyond. Here at the ABC, we've had to put the live TGIF show on hold for the moment. Instead, we're bringing you a special edition of TGIF with some of your favourite moments from the show over the last few months. Today, you'll hear from Beck de Unamuno, H.G. Nelson, Lizzie Hu, Gary Eck, Rob Carlton, Gene Kitson, Carlo Ritchie, Bridie Connell, Jeff Green, Tahir, and Tommy Dean with music from Alex Leahy. But first, the news from nowhere. This one, from back in November. A Paddington Terrace is up for sale, according to this week's real estate news, and part of the sales pitch is that it still has an outdoor toilet. (laughs) Apparently, it may be the last of its kind. I'm thinking of buying the place. The outdoor dunny has been much maligned in Australia. Properly situated, it affords a measure of privacy and fresh air that's never been matched. In the 1970s, I visited a place outside Canberra which offered a near-perfect example of the form. It was a long-drop dunny with a view over the cow fields and a choco vine trailing over the tin roof. With the door propped open, you could get both the sun on your knees and a breeze on your face. (laughs) Some old magazines were pressed onto a nail for use as toilet paper. Now, at this distance, I cannot recall the title of the periodical, but I assume it was the Australasian Post, a publication whose magazine-style content would provide lasting entertainment and yet whose paper stock was reassuringly Low gloss. (laughs) Now, true, a red-bellied black snake would sometimes make the odd appearance, but this would only ensure a more rapid timetable of events. (laughs) Sometimes so rapid you'd hardly started on the Australasian Post's Edamonga pub cartoon. Such bliss has rarely been achieved since. Instead, we allowed the toilets of Australia to begin their stealthy march up the back path towards the houses of the nation. It has proved a most costly mistake. Sometime during the 1940s, when the nation was distracted by war, the first outdoor dunnies made a run for it. They separated themselves from the back fence, charged up the path, sidestepping the hill's hoist, and ended up in a lean-to against the back of the house. The Australian people were lulled into a false sense of security. The night soil man who'd once collected the full pan 
nipping in from the back lane, heaving it onto his shoulder, was sent to the unemployment queue. Septic tanks were installed in their thousands and in older suburbs, town sewerage was connected. The effluent pumped out to the sea off Bondi. Australians became accustomed to this new level of convenience, a sophisticated new life in which you'd never again have to stumble down a darkened garden path during inclement weather to the outdoor dunny. So far, so good. But the toilets were still not happy with their lot. A couple of years on, the toilets took a running leap onto the back porch. <laughs> now, even then, most people didn't understand the threat. Back in the 1950s, it was assumed that you could allow the toilet onto the rear porch and there it would stay. Ladies and gentlemen, it didn't turn out that way. By the 1960s, the toilet had recommenced its forward march and was now to be found nestled inside the home, normally next to the laundry. Suddenly, now it was indoors. It had to be fitted out in the latest fashions. The tin roof, the fence paling sides, the old wire affixed to the cistern and serving as a chain, all that was declared unsuitable. Certainly, the Australasian post was long forgotten, its demise as toilet paper accelerating its decline as a publication. <laughs> Even ordinary toilet paper was deemed not good enough. Toilet paper had to be purchased in particular colours, Whole areas of the supermarket dedicated to offering sufficient choice. A fluffy, terry-toweling moat was installed around the base of the toilet. The same fabric also stretched over the lid and sometimes over the cistern. A matching colour, baby blue maybe or pastel pink, would be used for the toilet, the tiles, the toilet paper and the terry-toweling moat. The throne was being treated like a throne. Surely, at this point, the toilet was happy. But no, the toilet was yet to exhaust its lofty ambitions. It was in about 1975 that it broke free again, burrowing itself ever deeper into the home. This time, it secreted itself adjacent to the marital bed. <laughs> Arise the ensuite in which your ablutions are performed on one side of a hollow core door while a loved one lies in a bed three metres away, desperately squeezing a folded pillow over her ears. Now, historians have long noted the spike in divorces which occurred in January 1976 and have blamed the Whitlam government and its introduction of no-fault divorce. We historians of Australian plumbing know better. There are things that, once heard, are impossible to unhear. <laughs> is it too late for the people of Australia to fight back, to show our toilets who is boss? Might we strip them of the fancy fittings, the French porcelain, the designer magazine rank, the Danish design toilet roll holder? Might we chase them back down the path to the fence from whence they came so that one day we might again meander down the back path? whistling a merry tune, thence to shelter under a canopy of chocos, free to contemplate the wonders of the day and to keep our marital relationships intact. And that's the news from nowhere. Thank God it's Friday with Richard Glover. Now, every week we ask our live audience to put some topics on a chocolate wheel known as the Wheel of Death. 
one panellist has to talk off the bat on that topic. Up first, it's hard to resist playing another classic Wheel of Death from Rebecca de Unamuno in October last year. She took on the topic carnival. Roll up, roll up, they used to say, especially on their opening day. For you know what, things you know, the clown, guess what? Hey, the carnival, it's back in town. It used to happen. It gave me thrills, even in my suburb of Winston Hills. (laughs) Every year they would arrive en masse and set up the things. And boy, what a gas, because we'd go to the animals trapped in their cages and try to determine their sanity and ages. (laughs) But I think it was more the people that were carnival folk who were the ones, much like eggs, that were missing a (laughs) yolk. For the way they would saunter and talk to their pets. (laughs) And the way that they smelled, ooh, one never forgets. We'd pay our admission five bucks or maybe ten and when it was over we'd say, let's not do that again. (laughs) But regardless, 12 months later when they came back to town, we couldn't stand up, we couldn't sit down (laughs) for our bottoms were thrilled by the thought of those seats. You know, the ones that give you creases, something folds and bum pleats. And all that you wanted for this thing for the pushing was to get yourself an Ikea cushion. (laughs) (laughs) And let's not forget, after sitting on logs, you could go to the food thing and buy Dagwood dogs. (laughs) Who knows what they're made of? Are they dogs? Are they wood? (laughs) No matter when you ate seven, that wasn't real good. Folk. Oh, I don't know what they're smoking, but I'd like a toke. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, the Unimuno. How does she do it? I mean, when you've when you've when you've oh recommended the topic, and she does that out of the blue, <laughs> with a thing oh. you've thrown on the. How do you do that? You're weird, it. Rebecca. You're I weird. Know, I know. That's why I'm alone. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Does she die, ladies and gentlemen? Does she oh. die? Does she live? Yeah. Thank God it's. Thank God it's. She's amazing, isn't she? I don't know how she does it. Uh, Well, Rob Carlton, in August, a week before the big day, took on the topic of Father's Day. And Father's Day is this weekend? Sunday. Sunday. Okay, so obviously, given the fact that you already know that I wasn't aware that it was Father's Day coming up, and I am a father of twin boys... Um, you'll understand that Father's Day hasn't always been on my radar. And again, I guess I mentioned um, I had twin boys before, and I know to look at me, uh, the first thing you think isn't fertile. Um, <laughs> but there you go. Eh? Strange packages. I, um, that's right. I had to shoot both eggs. Pew, pew. And uh, nailed it. Um, 
So while I might not know much about Father's Day, um, clearly I'm an extraordinarily potent man uh, and, uh, and Father's Day should be my strong suit. So for the sake of the next few minutes, why don't we pretend it is? Um, so obviously the, the thing about Father's Day and I think what everybody says is that they say, you know, and, and the same with Mother's Day. They say every day should be Mother's Day and every day should be Father's Day. And I think to that... Bullshit. Um, it's got to be just one day of the year because it's got to be a special day and it's got to be a day where men can bore the hell out of everyone else and tell everyone how special we are because, let's be honest, we're not that special. <laughs> By and large, it wasn't our choice to have the children. It was like, oh, you know, because, you know, like, like honestly, a bit of a secret. I don't want to lift the lid on a whole lot of, like, male stuff here, but generally we're not thinking about the kids. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I think, like, the, the notion of being alive in the modern world is this constant conflict between impulse and, and planning. Um, I'd say, as, as a father, I was more on the impulse side of the equation rather than the planning uh, part of the equation. Nevertheless, uh, it, it all went extraordinarily well for me uh, with my twin boys. And, and so as a result, this Sunday, I, along with many, many millions of others of men around the world, I will be celebrating Father's Day. And to that end, it'll be a day of leisure for me. It'll be a day of reflection on how extraordinarily good I am. <laughs> It'll be a day of looking at other men thinking, you're not as good a father as I am. Because the one thing about Father's Day, and this is again another internal contradiction in that space, is that while it is a day for all fathers, it's also a day for each individual father to know how much of a better father they are than the, the dick next door. Because, and that's a lot about... Again, Richard, you and I are friends. Um, I'm a better father than you are. Um, I, I know that from all your news from nowhere. What you did with your boy and that uh, shed was a disgrace. <laughs> and the decisions you made in the lead-up to that, no wonder he's such a mess, mate. No wonder he's so broken. That's on you. And that's, that's for you to reflect on this Father's Day. I, I won't be reflecting on any, any such failure. I, I'll be... Again, and I'll be looking into uh, the of my wife and, and thinking, didn't you make a good choice? Mm. Uh, <laughs> with, with regards to your, your choice, because you're next to the greatest father, not just the street, but certainly the entire Avoca Beach suburb, because, again, <laughs> that's what Father's Day allows you to do. You get up late, I'm going to eat a lot of bacon, or I'm going to have a few coffees, and I'm just going to look at my children and go, how good are you? You're amazing boys. You're beautiful. You're sensitive. You're kind. All because of me. Uh, and, and, and that, Richard, are my reflections on Father's Day. Hey! Does he die? Does he die? Does he leave? It's a weird place to go. See, that, yeah, that, that is, that is, it's not so bad, is it? It's, I, well, well it, it would be, I would need to hear a recording of what just happened yeah. over the last... I know, it's good. It's, it's, it was good. Do you know, like, Back to the Future, where you go and you're away for a year and then you come back and no time's passed? That's what the Wheel of Death is, man. You it's should true. have heard what you said about your wife. I know. You're not getting Father's I, Day. It's going, to be fairly, it's going to be fairly light on this year. Oh, yeah. no. No, well, see, what you ladies don't know scant. that I know is that my wife never listens to anything I say. So, <laughs> <laughs> ah, 
<laughs> I'm safe as houses. So what, what do you usually get for Father's Day, though? Do they actually get you anything or they just tell you how great you are? Honestly, it's, go, That's it's, all he needs. It's really not on my radar. I've never celebrated it. Haven't you? No, because I don't... Well, you can't be that. Because I can't. I don't celebrate Mother's Day. It'd be churlish. <laughs> no, that's not true. I it's do true. celebrate Mother's Day. But Father's Day, I just don't even think about it. So, I don't know, they might do something, but... Isn't that terrible? They may yeah. have, and I've already uh, forgotten. Clearly you're not that special. Right. You do paint a very good picture of Avoca Beach, and, and all that, you know, you've got the, all that veranda culture mm, there, yeah. you're all standing oh. around with the beers and the barbecues, yeah, that's right. uh, all the fathers comparing mm. the size of their decks. And not one yeah. New Zealander amongst us, Richard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I liked it when Rob, Rob said, you know, like... Um, that men don't choose to have children because it reminded me of what happened with my husband, but he was my boyfriend at the time. And I remember when I got pregnant, I rang up and I said, are you alone? And he said, yes. And I said, well, not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God it's Friday with Richard Glover. Oh, fabulous. He doesn't die, does he? H.G. Nelson is another one of those brave panellists who has willingly taken on the wheel of death. What was his topic? Well, back in October, the wheel spun and the topic was rhubarb. Yes, what a wonderful topic rhubarb is. Uh, (laughs) There's rhubarb crumble, of course, which is a terrific dish. You boil the rhubarb in water until it comes nice and pulpy and usually add a bit of sugar or honey to it and then make up a crumble mixture for the topping. Uh, If you're taking notes, it will be up on the website later, (laughs) the recipe. Maybe a cup of flour, a cup of coconut, a cup of brown sugar or sugar to taste with some cinnamon or, you know, that five spice. And then you put in some butter with this, Maybe uh, four, no, 400 grams would be too much, 250 grams of butter. And then you crumble that together so you get a nice... 250 lovely... grams of butter is a whole packet. You know that, don't you? 250. I mean, so I'm down to 125 <laughs> of butter. And, uh, then you crumble all that together and maybe cook in an oven of 250 degrees. Or I, I, would de- I would defer to Simon Marnie on the degrees in temperature. Uh, but having said that, uh, rhubarb is also a term of derision. I'm not sure where this comes from, but I could be persuaded it comes from something like The Goon Show, which is an ancient radio program that the ABC still holds the rights to. And sooner or later, when Richard's been fired, they'll put up The Goon Show almost on continuous rotation, much in the manner of Midsummer Murders and... Uh, you know, Antiques Roadshow. When they do that, what will happen to the ratings? The ratings will go through the roof uh, (laughs) because kids today will be amazed that that people could be so funny and so stupid and yet so adult all at the same time. So we've covered a fair bit of ground so far from rhubarb, 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 which I think Eccles might have said, character in The Goon Show, could be uh, mistaken there. But then we come to what I consider the nub of the problem, rhubarb wine. Uh, This is an excellent... You know, people forget in Australia how inventive we are with alcohol and alcoholic products. Rhubarb wine is fantastic. You just, um, in fact, you don't need to do much at all. Just uh, put some rhubarb in a bottle with uh, as much sugar as you want want to and leave it there and, hey, presto, you can come back later. And rhubarb gin uh, would be something that I think people should take on board as a serious product uh, because, let's face it, in the future we'll be looking for new markets once we've sold all our iron ore and coal to China. And rhubarb wine could be the saviour. I'm not sure how easy rhubarb, how, is the minute almost up? Uh, I'm not sure how easy rhubarb is to grow, but I'm pretty sure it grows pretty easily mm. and you don't need to do anything to it. You just pour water on it. Well, water may be your problem. <laughs> Having got the, uh, got the plants in the ground, it grows very vigorously and uh, hardly needs any attention at all and some would consider it a weed. It does have a rather 
attractive flower would be going too far, but it does have a flower which you could probably cut and put in a vase and surprise listeners by what's that on the mantelpiece? It looks pretty exotic, and then point out it's just rhubarb. <laughs> hey! Hey, Shane Nelson! Does he die, ladies and gentlemen? Does he die? No! He lives. Green 250 tea. was too hot. <laughs> 250 too should hot. be 180. And I'm not sure about them making the the uh, alcoholic beverage. I don't know if it's just sugar you'd have to add to it or whether you'd have to add something else to it. There'd be some yeast. Yeah, yeah, but that, yeah. does that make it into a beer sort of thing? If you're going to make it into gin, you're going to gin, have to get I think you need a still. I think. Now, if you need a still, if you need a still, man, he lives in Mullumbimby. The hills are full of them. <laughs> I, yeah, we've got a lot of them. I, I actually, we've got a good distillery up there. It's great. Mm, I go up mm. there every day. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> we love making stuff up there. If it's prohibited, we're into it. <laughs> Thank God it's Friday with Richard Glover. Hey, HG, no one can do it like him. Thanks for joining us on this special edition of Thank God It's Friday. Of course, you can listen back through our free ABC TGIF podcast. Find it on the ABC website or on the Listen app. And you can find full episodes on there as well as from the last couple of years' worth of TGIF. So plenty of lockdown listening. Now, on Thank God It's Friday, we love hearing our panel's muse about the oddities of life. In April, the smooth-moving Jeff Green, Tahir and Tommy Dean were asked about their signature dance moves. I had a couple. I had a couple. Uh, if it started the early, early in the night, I had a thing that I called uh, the lean, uh, which is where <laughs> I would lean on the post or wall closest to the dance floor and then slowly riffle a shoulder and beat with the sign. <laughs> like that. Holding a drink? Uh, depend on the, the nature of the dance. Uh, <laughs> but quite often I would be known to have a punch. <laughs> a fruit punch in my left hand. Uh, looking suave. Uh, and then also uh, the other how, one... How did you expect this to uh, end with any connection with the opposite sex? Oh, no, I never expected that at all. <laughs> Uh, that is always why I was leaning because the, the lean also then uh, the maneuver that was like the lean is how it would start. But then if accidentally uh, through some weirdness that I could never quite understand, a woman came anywhere close to me, I would then transition into my second big move, which was the gasp, <laughs> uh, which is when I just started breathing hard and shuffling the front of my shirt to the time of the music, uh, suggesting that I had just finished dancing so enthusiastically I couldn't possibly dance again. <laughs> I am so tired. Uh, so between the lean and the gasp, I had a lot of fun <laughs> at dances. Tahir, what were your moves? Uh, mine was to mimic and copy others. Uh, that's, that's what I did. I was a mimic, you know, being a performer. Uh, so I always think it's fun to do the dancing of different cultures. So uh, I know it's radio, but I think we should feel, give something to the good folk here. Yeah, of course. So uh, let's learn a bit of Turkish dancing. So um, You don't so think we- they've been through enough? No, I think they should be put through more. We've got kids here and everything in school holidays. So everybody, Turkish dancing, if you don't mind, stick your two hands out like this. Everybody, everybody stick your two hands out. Right? Click your fingers and just look really bored. <laughs> Repeat this in a circle continuously. 
for 400 years. <laughs> have you seen it? Nobody's having a good time. Have you seen that circles? Everything's going on. Arabic dancing, very easy too. Just again, just one hand out like this, or one hand just okay. tell, and, and just get aggressive on dance. We'll tell someone off. We go, piss off, piss off like that. Piss off, piss off, piss off. And every now and then, change a light bulb. <laughs> These dances are very easy. The cultural dances. Indian dancing, the roof is collapsed. Put it back up. Come on, everybody, put it back up. <laughs> To be fair, they're all very hot environments. They are. They're very hot. Very hot. <laughs> Jeff, you'd be a, a pretty smooth mover on I, the um, dance floor. I used to be. You know, you know, um, you know, men lose their ability to dance in their forties. You know, it's generally people. But that, that's quite um, truthfully. There's an anthropological school of thought that says that the reason <laughs> for that is it's a subtle signal to all the women in the tribe that those men are no longer worth mating with. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and um, yeah, but I have a few... So it's Charles Darwin at work, basically. It, it totally, yeah, yeah. I okay. challenge the use of the word subtle. <laughs> well, Based the men, on the, the plus men don't 40s know, I've seen dancing. Everything straightens up in your forties, yeah. don't you? you think, oh, I'm not risking the neck. No, not at this, uh, <laughs> this stage. I usually start with um, with a sort of you know a hands in the pocket, left to right shuffle. My all my dance moves um, change as the drink flows. You see, so I'll start mm. with a you know le- left to right shuffle. Then I'll get the crowd interested with a Gangnam style, but a twisting that flushes out all the chiropractors in the club. <laughs> they start cheering me on, looking for <laughs> looking for work. Then I transition to the epileptic turtle, which is sort of speaks for itself. Then I have a Red Bull. Then I have a little bit of random finger-pointing with pirouettes. Um, then I do a few knee slides, um, and I made this robe at this point. Um, then if the bouncers still haven't spotted me, I, I, I offer my, my signature seasick sea, sea octopus with borderline restraining order. Um, finishing the car park with a flawless newborn giraffe. And then I encore with a weeping toilet hugger. And, and three days of I am never drinking again. <laughs> Thank God it's Thank God it's Thank God it's Friday. Welcome back to this special edition of Thank God It's Friday on ABC Radio Sydney and ABC Radio New South Wales. I'm Richard Glover. Hope you're enjoying this little dip of the toes into the pristine pool of TGIF goodness. Over the next half an hour, you'll hear from more of your favourite panellists and some live music from the fabulous Alex Leahy. But first to our panellists. A report from last year found rich people are much richer than we previously thought, revealing many underreport their income. Lizzie Hu, Gary Eck and Rob Carlton were asked in February about their best attributes and the ones they're too frightened to tell anyone about. Oh, I did a lot of weird kid activities, so I've got a few weird... Skills, I can fence. Wow. Oh, mm. nice. Parry yeah, thrust. Yes. Lizzie Parry Because thrust. after the bushfires, there's needs for a lot of fences. Yeah. <laughs> hey. the, the sport. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and before I, uh, I think the reason I got into comedy was because uh, mum entered me into competitive poetry recital. Yeah. Yeah, all yeah. through primary I can, school. I can see why you don't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one I keep on the download. <laughs> and you, you, you have to write your own poetry? No, or you no, read there, there's uh, topics. So I entered the flora and fauna section mm-hmm. and the humorous poem division. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's in the reciting, not the writing. Yeah, the reciting. The reciting. And then you'd, you'd get up there in, in front of hundreds of people, all these kids would enter, and then there'd be three old ladies in the front marking you, yeah, just looking yeah, at you. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's and scary. did anyone, when your mother did this, did anyone ring docs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not at all. <laughs> the things you, uh, the attributes, you know, like being wealthy, you think it's a good thing, but they're shy about it. Well, yeah. look, I'm a stand up comedian. I wish I could underreport my income. <laughs> like when people stop me in the street to survey, you know, ask me how much I earn, you know, I'm like, well, look, give me 10 bucks and I'll tell you. And, like, seriously, can I have that money now? I really need that money now. I just give me the 10 bucks and I'll keep answering your question. And they give you the 10 bucks and they say, so how, what are you worth? And you yeah, say, say, 10, 10 bucks. bucks. <laughs> yeah, but, I, you know, I, I have some, you know, I have some qualities, Richard. Uh, modesty. Yeah. I'm very modest. Um, I don't like to talk about myself. Especially on radio to thousands of people. Uh, my new book, which is coming out next week, <laughs> called Modesty. It's three volumes. And um, I've got a TV show called uh, Please Turn the Camera Off. But just keep it going for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, that's the problem, I think, with Australians. That is a, it's, a, it's a nice attribute, but it's also one that doesn't serve you well, that we don't like to talk about ourselves. We don't brag. Mm-hmm. Americans do it really yeah. well. They're professionals. Like, you go to America. I remember going to America, and I, I was meeting with agents and stuff like that. And I was told, as you know, Rob, they would say to you, look, whatever you do, talk yourself up. Because mm. we are so hopeless. You go into a meeting, and they're like, Gary, so what have, what have you done? I'm like, ah, oh, you know a bit of stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's end the meeting now. <laughs> Whereas they really want you to talk yourself up, but we just can't do it now. It's a real, it's a genuine cultural difference. I have a it lot is. of them, you know, American people I interview them, you know, mm. actors and singers. They come on the drive show in mm. Sydney and, and, and I start interviewing them and they start bragging about the prizes they've won and mm. the Oscar they've won or what, the sales. Of, and I feel like turning the microphone. Yeah. Say, don't brag. People won't <laughs> like you. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll say what you've done. That's yeah. fine. But I, I don't think we mind uh, foreigners or Americans doing it. It's just that when Australians do it, it's, oh, you're up yourself, yeah. mate. Yeah. Yeah. You know. No one likes a big note, mate. No, no, yeah, turn it down. Yeah. Jeez, where are you going? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I just won the Oscar. Oh, yeah, did you? Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. It's like, what do you got to do to get someone's respect in this country? If, if Australians were the first to walk on the moon, it, it would have been one small step and, oh, you know. Yeah. 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 And then when you told someone about it, they go, oh, sorry, mate, I missed it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Rob? Yeah, I, this, it is. It, you're absolutely right. You, you've, put, you've hit the nail on the head. It puts everyone in, in a really difficult position. But if, if I'm forced into this situation... <laughs> I'm an extraordinary lover. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, look, being happily married, it's not a superpower that, that benefits many people. Um, but just for me, it's nice to know. Um, it's kind of like just knowing that you've paid your insurance premium. It just makes you feel... It's, it's, it, that's rubbish. I'm the vainest person you know, Richard. I can't shut up. Didn't we, hear, like, didn't we hear earlier that you tr- wherever you travel, it's with your wife and mistress in the van? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ah, dearie me. With no. Both of them trying to break the lock. <laughs> They've heard it was faulty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, it's, um, no, yeah, here in Australia, it's, 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 it puts you in a really different... Because I don't talk about my bad attributes, right? And so if I'm not allowed to take, talk about my, my good stuff and, and I don't talk about my bad stuff, then... And I'm a talker. I'm not allowed to talk about anything. It puts me in an existential crisis. I'm done. Mm, mm. <laughs> what is the good at? There must be one other than being a... Uh, other than being oh, a, a terrific... Like, no, again, it's not even really me. Like, my friend Jamie, he, he's, he's, he's a classic example. His sons are amazing rugby players. And he never talks about it at all. 
one of my children did a forward somersault the other day and not even, <laughs> not even in the air. <laughs> Just kind of along the ground. It's sort of skew-if too. I can't stop crowing about it. <laughs> Thank God it's Friday with Richard Glover. Good stuff. Now, inspired by the school holidays and having kids at home, Jean Kitson, Carlo Ritchie and Bridie Connell remembered what they did when they were bored as children. My parents weren't any help because there was nothing they could really do if you were bored, but I don't really remember being bored. I don't think I got bored till I was a teenager growing up in a town that didn't have a cinema, didn't have, you know, like... And I was too young to drink. I couldn't go to the hotels. There was nothing for teenagers to do. That's when I got bored. This is in Victoria, right? Yeah, that was in Sorrento, in yeah. a town called Sorrento. So it was that was a holiday place. So people went there for their school holidays, and that's when the cinema would open and things like that. But but the rest of the time, rest of the time, well, I don't even remember being bored so much because we played. Like when we were kids, like little kids, we just played. So we'd go out on our bikes on dangerous country roads. And and we'd go if, if we wanted a bit of a thrill, we'd go to the local cemetery and we'd read all the, you know, the and we'd look at the broken graves and just freak out and make up stories and then we'd look at the babies' graves and we'd have a cry and then we'd go to Dame Nelly Melba's grave, which was behind this hedge, and we'd smoke and um, then we and she'd get know, out of the grave and tour again. She'd sing a song, sensor that's what she had on a grave, which I didn't realise meant goodbye without regrets or something like that. Oh, it's from wow. La Boheme. Yeah. Gee, who needs an Xbox? This sounds fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bikes and adventures and we were mushroom picking, getting chased by bulls. Now I'm back in the Yarra Valley. I've left Sorrento oh. now. But but actually it was the other way around. So I grew up in the country like you, Carlo, like plenty of, you know, bulls. And oh, animals yeah. and orchards and Glen Innes. I've been to Glen Innes. You've got your own, they like, stone They keep asking when you're coming back. Yeah, <laughs> oh, they no. They <laughs> Do they? Oh, no, yeah. they say, please keep that woman away from us. <laughs> you say the word bull as if you've never heard the term before. You, no, you were uncertain then as to how to bulls. identify the animal. Well... I could They're say different things in each state. That's mm. right, you see. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> that's right. And also, you know, like because one day I stayed on a farm with my friend, and then there was all hell broke loose because the breeders got in with the milkers. So you, no one calls them really cows. They've got there's a whole lot of subcategories like breeders. <laughs> And milkers. So when the breeders, which were the Brahmins, got in with the milkers, that was, that was, that would have been a disaster, because you don't want your milkers to get pregnant and stop giving milk. Is that right? I have no idea. You're listening to the night edition. I have no of idea. But Brahmins, <laughs> also, you know, like Brahmins have a pizzle the size of a Volkswagen, and you don't want to see that when you're young either. They do. It's absolutely. So I was never bored. No. <laughs> Bridie Connell, were you bored and were your parents any help? Oh, look, I do remember a few times my mother did give me that line of only boring people get bored and that would plunge me at the age of seven into a deep existential crisis about not only was I bored but I had no hope of ever becoming an interesting person because I was fundamentally boring. Mm. But my beautiful parents, uh, I, I also grew up in the country um, and in school holidays, you know, my, my town was tiny so I totally relate to that. There was not... 
um, always heaps to do. If we were in town, it was a different story. But if we're at the farm, there wasn't a lot to do. And I always had so many different creative ideas in my head. And so as a present when I was about nine or ten, I think, um, my gorgeous parents built a stage in one of our wool sheds that we didn't use very much. And so I opened my own theatre company on the farm. <laughs> and uh, I really multitasked. I wrote and directed and starred in the shows. I also had a, a we had a, like a teeny tiny little um, corrugated iron shed, which I made Dad put on the back of the ute and taken to the front of the wool shed and I made a little box office sign for it and so I would be behind the box office I charged 20 cents my beautiful performances then I would open the door then I would hurriedly go and get into costume and do my one woman show so um I wasn't bored I think the audience may have been often my older brother who was very patient. He's had patience of a saint. Real but, patron of that theatre. Oh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> coming back. <laughs> Forced to by my mother. <laughs> so the audience is your brother, your mm. mother and your father. Uh, yes. And three sheep. Yeah. Well, actually, my lamb, Daffy, did come often <laughs> to watch my shows. Did, with this lamb, Daffy, did you by any chance build her a house and offer to marry her? <laughs> Hearing that story about Suzanne Jr., I, I feel like uh, I've really missed a trick there, so <laughs> Carlo. You haven't lived until you've looked into the loving eyes of a kangaroo. <laughs> Car- Carlo, were you, were you ever bored up in this paradise that you're describing of, of the country called New England? Oh, look, you know, um, I, was, I was just talking about this the other day with some friends of mine in a game that I had forgotten that we invented, which I guess shows some degree of the boredom that we had as kids. We had this game when I was 17, so I was on my way to being a full adult, and we had a game where there was an, an old drain on the main road, and the game was you would jump onto that drain patch, a sort of square of cement, and wave at the next car to come along, and if they waved at you, you got a point. Yeah. Uh, and then... <laughs> And then as soon as the car went, you jumped off and someone else jumped on quickly because each car was about, you know, two to three minutes in between. Yeah. And, uh, oh, you'd get up to 20, 30, 40 points. Did you often win, Carlo? Because I think you probably would have. I, I, you know, I've got a good wave, a good wave. Approachable um, <laughs> presence. Maybe this is where our active imaginations come from, you know? Yeah. Because you've just reminded me, my, my friend and I, we always put on shows, you know. We'd put on, we'd put on poetry recitals, but we had a few more neighbours so we'd make and they were all elderly so we'd make them come around, come around and then we'd we'd put on shows and I remember one day we put on an autumn poetry reading um, and her brother got up on the roof and he at a certain point he had to drop autumn leaves down on us and and before it happened it rained and all the autumn leaves we collected on the roof filled up the gutters and we got into so much trouble because all the gutters you know, got blocked and the dad was up there in the rain. And and this same friend, I remember another reason I wasn't bored, because she, because she was such an interesting friend. She had an older brother and sister, which I didn't have, so she told me about sex and demonstrated. And she, I mean, we had our clothes on. We're only like six or something. And then, and then she told me about Father Christmas and the Tooth Fairy and then she showed me a human brain that was in a pot in the garage. Oh, wow. Never speak of again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. There was a father, a serial killer. 
No, he was a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> just took it home. Just, you know. Oh, that, that, that doesn't need to be anywhere. Jean's, Jean's uh, elderly audience is now being considered by the aged, the Royal Commission into Aged Care. <laughs> Yet another example of abuse. I don't know why we didn't use a brain. You know, that would have been a good prop. Good prop. It, it, well, a, f- a friend of mine at Barham Junction years ago, they had an old, like talking about finding strange stuff in your house, they had this little hillock out the front of their house that they decided one day to get rid of and build a garden there in front of the house. And they dug into it and it was a World War II flamethrower that had been what? buried in their oh, front yard. Oh, nice. Yeah. Life <laughs> in the city starting to look pretty boring, isn't it? Thank God it's Friday with Richard Glover. Oh, there'll be a lot of that going on this week, don't you reckon? You're listening to a special edition of Thank God It's Friday on ABC Radio Sydney. And finally for today, it's time to hear another standout live performance our studio audience was treated to last year. In October, Alex Leahy dropped into the studio for a tune and a chat about her time writing her latest album in Nashville. Thank God it's I'd never been before and... I had I, I was planning on writing this album and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go indulge this cliche and write a bunch of songs. In Nashville. Uh, in Nashville. Yeah. But Nashville is like, yeah, totally more than just country music. It's really is like the home of songwriting and this like amazing punk music that comes out of there and all sorts of stuff and it's just, yeah, an awesome town. Okay, so you're going to see music every night while you're writing during the day, you're going to see music every night. What sort of stuff are you seeing in Nashville? Um, there's like sort of a bit of everything. I mean... Um, I've got a couple of like friends who live in uh, in Nashville and work out of there and they both mainly play like punk music which is pretty cool um and there's a lot of like really great um like female artists coming out who do a bunch of other stuff as well producing and engineering and yeah it's really like versatile and varied and diverse and cool. Mm-hmm. I mean the thing I think so game about you is you had because of Triple J hugely successful on Triple J and Unearthed and all that you had a, a really easy life here I guess touring you had an instant audience that everyone knew you and instead of that you go over to somewhere like the US where you're not known at all. A lot of Australian music artists do this. It must be very tough, I think, touring from the ground up. How do you manage to do that? I mean, it's definitely um, sometimes a reality check, but I think that that's really important and it's like it's a really good thing to be like aware of. Like no one, no one can conquer the world, not mm. even Trump. <laughs> and um, and it's um, it's a really, yeah, good, good way to kind of get things in perspective and to also like have – you know, a different show when, you know, in Australia we'll play like a theatre and that's like one type of show as opposed to when we play like a little club room in Atlanta, Georgia or something like that. Okay, but you're playing a lot of time to people who don't know who you are, I guess. Yeah, I suppose, which is like they're the best crowds in a way, like having the opportunity to play to a group of people who don't know you and, you know, they can take it or leave it, but it's really exciting when people come back the next time and, yeah, it's great. And do they get it? Do they get the accent? Do they get the stories? Because your songs are full of stories. Yeah, I think so. The, the funny thing is like when I don't pick up that people might not know what I'm talking about, like there's a song on my record called Black RMs, which is a reference to RM Williams' mm-hmm. boots. Mm-hmm. And Well, that's um, going to go down well. Well, yeah. <laughs> endorse me no <laughs> um, but um I re- there's a song called that on the on the on the record and like when I went to America like and people were coming up saying that they'd really enjoyed the record and that they really related to it and then they were like oh but what's an RM and I had to like explain it and I was like these things on my feet right here black RMs. <laughs> so um yeah it was pretty cool it's a boot back it's home a, it's like, a boot it's a um there's a great song um which I think you might be going to do for us called Unspoken History. It's kind of, I, well, I thought, you tell me if I'm wrong, it's kind of about the necessity of sometimes having to give up friendships 
from your past. Is that what it's about for you? Yeah, I feel like there's been like a lot of songs on this record that is kind of about like letting things go. And I think like especially when you're, you know, in I think in certain phases of your life, but particularly for myself, like being in my mid-20s and being out of like a lot of kind of like given friendships that you have from school or university mm. and that kind of stuff, um, there is sometimes a time where you kind of, you know, look at your relationships and you're like, actually, like this one's kind of like going with time and that's okay. Yeah. You've yeah. grown and you've separated and you've gone on your own path. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Will you pay for us? Yes, absolutely. How lovely. Alex Leahy's got the new album out. It's called The Best of Luck Club. But here's Alex live on Thank God It's Friday. <laughs> We don't want Wanna let it go But for reasons I don't know I can't We used to have it so together We couldn't be undone We used to do it till it wasn't fun I got tired of feeling that you weren't the same Understand why you weren't the one to blame. We used to be unbeatable. You used to be my saint. Now I fear that it might be too late. Wasn't any space with everything on your mind We ended up perforated I was just a kid Tell me, is it something that I did? But you, you won't ever know Oh, I, I don't want you to go Knew how 
the wonderful Alex Leahy. Thanks for joining us on this special edition of Thank God It's Friday. Of course, you can listen back through our free ABC TGIF podcast. Find it on the ABC website or on the Listen app. And you can find full episodes on there as well as from the last couple of years' worth of TGIF. So plenty of lockdown listening. In the meantime, I'm Richard Glover. And thank God it's Friday! Yes, it is time now for another Letter from America with Tommy Dean as our TGIF regular returns home to the US, but after two decades in Australia, will he ever be able to fit back in? Tommy, hello. Once again, how is isolation and lockdown for you? So exciting. And uh, I'm assuming this is uh, all over the news in Australia, but I have just been informed that you are now a broadcaster from home. That's right. This is, like a, this, is a, even... this is a bedroom to bedroom, uh, you know, link up. It, exactly. It, I've never felt closer to you. <laughs> so describe where you've been talking to us from. What, what does the room look like? Well, uh, it looks like, like, have you ever seen those, uh, you know, I don't want to brag, but like, have you ever seen the Sistine Chapel? Yeah, I have. Yeah. I mean, it's like that in the sense that there's a roof, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, it hasn't been painted yet, but the potential is there. So it's like the Sistine Chapel before Michelangelo was hired. The ceiling might be slightly lower than the Sistine Chapel? Um, well, I've never been in the Sistine Chapel myself, so it's hard to tell from a postcard. But I get the feeling it's probably a little bit lower. Sistine Chapel has got some of the world's most famous art. What art have you got? I have, looking around uh, quickly, oh, I have an oversized picture of my son's head on a stick. That was from his senior at a senior day basketball game where they put all the seniors' heads on poster board. And then on the wall is a picture from his cross-country days. They do vinyl banners of all the senior athletes. Wow. And then along the uh, mantle near the fireplace, I have all of the pottery that he made in pottery class. So that's more of uh, Rodan, really more than Michelangelo, now that I think about it. <laughs> You've got a piece is very much like the thinker. But tell us more about the sporting stuff, because I don't think that happen. A pottery class might happen here, but I, I don't think we tend to lionize our school athletes in quite the same way. They, they really kind of make them small town heroes, don't they? 
Oh, very much small town heroes. In fact, uh, the football team is the most vital link in the small town world. And all of the football players have, you know, like, like posters you make for politicians that you mm. stick in your yard. Mm. So they, they all have a poster that the school makes for them to stick in their yard as like a parental brag. You know, my son's the starting quarterback. You're kidding. And they, they would be actually put in your front yard in the same way as you might put a, you know, a, 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 a Liberal Party poster or a Labor Party poster, something like that. Yeah, stick it right up there. Big, wow. Big. And then on all the, in the gymnasium, they have all the senior athletes and every sport has a full vinyl banner. The banner is about five feet tall. It's almost life size of every student athlete hanging from the rafters. And then you get to pay $25 to take them home with you. <laughs> <laughs> Do they lionize other students like this, the, the, the chemistry you know, kid or the, or the arts kid? Uh, no. Uh, no, <laughs> that's disappointing to state, but no, they don't. In fact, hilariously, uh, the high school that my son attends has a small but very excellent engineering, like an engineering club. And there's three kids that compete in sort of you know, national engineering competitions. And the school had three teams, and all three of them placed in the top ten of all teams in the nation mm. in the latest competition. But at the assembly where they celebrated all of these things, the principal couldn't remember their names. <laughs> well, why do you think it's like that? Uh, you know, because Australians believe that they're, they're the, the most obsessed sporting nation on, on earth. So how come we don't treat our school athletes in anything like this way? Because I... I think Australia still subscribes to the team. And while mm. certain teams certainly rally around superstars, we certainly have superstars in Australian sport, but the tall poppy syndrome makes sure that we let those superstars know that they can't be superstars without the rest of the team. Mm. Whereas America very much specializes, and it's all about the three or four guys that are good, and everyone else should count themselves lucky that they got <laughs> to be carried along. <laughs> so there is an eye in team after all. Oh, very much about the individual effort. So it's a little bit disappointing. Uh, but the, the Math Olympics, they call the, the Math Olympians, they were celebrated at the latest sporting banquet and they too were shunned. <laughs> <laughs> I so badly wanted to do like a Simpsons episode. So they had, you know, they introduced the basketball team and then the volleyball team, the soccer team, and then. When the when the announcer says, and now please welcome the math Olympics team, there was sort of this uncomfortable hush comes over the crowd for a second as we all think, is that a team? <laughs> <laughs> That's something people can do. You just want somebody up the back to yell out, nerds! Yeah, but you see, this is where the coronavirus is important because suddenly the people who are living the life of the mind are suddenly okay. They can do the life of the mind in isolation, whilst the sporting teams, they can't play. They can't play. And the reality is we need the nerds more than ever. This is exactly what the Bible meant when it said the meek shall inherit the earth. And I think meek is an ancient term, which means guys who know stuff. <laughs> we need science like we have never needed it before. It was one thing to watch Matt Damon grow potatoes out of human poop but we're going to really, really have to science some stuff up over these next few months. <laughs> and how are you managing both of you with, with isolation? Are you watching television? What are you doing? We mix and match. 
had a funny moment the other day because Asher is still taking his classes from his bedroom, and I he was having a uh, psychology class, but I didn't realize he was in class. It was later in the day, so I thought he had done with that. So I just hear a voice, and I just assume I'm hearing his TV, but it's a woman who's going over the stages of grief, but getting them wrong. <laughs> This is Kubler-Ross. I didn't realize it was a multiple-choice test, and he had to pick the correct order. Oh, I see. But all I kept hearing through the door was anger, depression, acceptance, bargaining, denial. (laughs) Or is it anger, acceptance, depression, denial, bargaining? And the whole time I'm going, come on! It's denial, anger, (laughs) bargaining, depression, acceptance, and Arkansas. Those are the six (laughs) states of depression. Everyone knows that. But now, here's my thing. I've been watching a lot of television, and I think we need to now modify reviews to watch television that won't hurt your head more. All right, yeah. Like, I find it curious. Netflix here lists the top 10 shows every day. These are the 10 shows that America is seemingly loving the most at the moment. And it's curious to look at that list. Like, one of them was uh, the movie Contagion. Mm. Uh, and I think the reason people like to watch that movie is because uh, they solved it in two hours. <laughs> Not six months. It takes six months. Uh, only a few people got hurt. A couple of people got locked up. Uh, some very smart people at a government level intervened quickly and got stuff done properly. You know, that's sort of the same sort of government fantasy that West Wing gave us. <laughs> what you can do with competent government. Uh, I recently took to watching Westworld. I'd never watched the show Westworld, and that was a bad choice. Because that, that show is really about, you know, contemplating who you are as a person, what's your inner self, and, you know, can robots gain sentient, 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 sentient consciousness? <laughs> Brains. You know, can they, you know, and what is reality versus, can't tell the difference, is a robot a person? And then the second series, I didn't really want to keep going, but I had invested myself, I started watching the second season, uh, to try to understand it even more, uh, I watched it with my toaster and my kettle. And I was a little bit surprised to find that the toaster didn't like the show at all, but the kettle was weeping at almost everything. So the so kettle was definitely moved. has a much so more th- sentient feeling. Is, is this part of self-isolation that you find yourself developing quite firm relationships with your appliances? Well, the show teaches us that the, the robots rebelled because we were horrible to them. And I just realized... I was taking my toaster and kettle for granted. Hmm. I didn't want them to think that I only needed them for my own base, selfish reasons, that I appreciated them not only as a form, but also as a function. You know, I, I move them around now. Like, I don't keep them in the same place. That seems rude. It's not going to stop them from turning on you once they get sentience. Sentience. No, no. The toaster's been burning my bread since day one. He came angry. I think he was on the back of the shelf for too long. <laughs> Changing up his attitude is going to be hard, but the kettle, the kettle, the kettle continues to serve me well, even though it's boiling some of the worst water I've ever encountered. <laughs> but others, you know, I think my, the other one that's most popular, and I know this is very popular in Australia at the moment as well, is uh, the Tiger King documentary. Yeah, I've watched that, yeah. And I think it's interesting to read my friend's analysis of this show in Australia who treat it very much as a, oh, my God, how weird are Americans? Yeah. Whereas in America, most of us are watching that. We're like, oh, my God, I totally went to that zoo or one just like it. (laughs) I mean, in a way, you should be our advisor in this because you've been living an isolated life in America since you arrived there. 
I agree. And this is the key. I see a lot of people starting to get a cabin fever. And let me, let me give you some long-lived tips, Australia, how to make your personal space seem bigger than it is. Refer to each room as a suburb. That's step one. So if you're constantly thinking to yourself, oh, I'm getting so bored of walking from the kitchen to the living room, go, no, I have to travel from Bondi to Surrey Hills. That sort of opens it up. Yeah. And then you can't do it straight away. The main thing is then to remember, you've got all day. So just don't, just don't go straight to Surrey Hills. Think, oh, I've got to wait for the bus. And then just stay in Bondi, do a few more things in Bondi until it's time for the bus to come. And then take the bus to Surrey Hills. And now you're at the theater. So now you can watch your show in Surrey Hills where the theater is. Ah. And, and you can watch your TV show. And you think, and oh, could we, oh. Then, could we then have uh, lunch in Warunga? Exactly. And, you, you know, I would suggest, you know, maybe get an Uber for that. That would be my, you know, because it's a bit further to go. So, you know, get a ride share. Huh. So you have to book, book the ride. It's all, you know, imagine, imagination. Yeah, yeah. Have a and chat imagine. with the driver, find out that he's a, you know, he's an architecture student and he's in his second year and he's just doing this to raise some money because he wants to, yeah, sure. Exactly. Talk about the history of his life. Uh, you know, get to know what his cares and concerns are. And then you arrive in Warunga. Um, did you say Warunga? That was, you can't even say Warunga. I really can't. One of my best friends is from there. I've never been able to say it. <laughs> well, we'll Let's make go to it Wallara for lunch. Can we Wallara make it Hornsby? Nice we'll have lunch in Hornsby if that's easier. Much easier. Let's go to Hornsby. But this is all in the imagination. Just imagine you're living the life that you used to live and just plot it out. Because most of us don't live very extensive lives. Yeah. That's the reality. For everyone complaining that they don't have anything to do anymore, they didn't have that much to do in the first place. You know, they got up in the morning, had themselves a bit of Vegemite on toast, and then they got in their car or they took their bus or train and they went into the wherever it is they work, let's say the city. They got to the city. They put in their hours. They maybe stepped outside the office for a cafe lunch that's very close by their office, and then they went home. And that's sort of, as Wes would call it, their loop. That's what Westworld would call your loop. And you would just keep living your loop. So now just put your loop inside your house. <laughs> and then and I, haven't, I haven't tested this theory because I, of course, am living on the other side of the world from my wife. But I imagine that if I was still in the house with her, what I would do, and I think she would love this, is every time I came home from the office, which would be, you know, the third bedroom that I had the computer in. <laughs> then when I would return back, I would always say every time I change rooms, honey, I'm home. <laughs> I'm home from the office. And I'm sure that would never get old. She would be so thrilled. But then, you know, Shall we go, go, shall we go and have a... Yeah, let's, let's go, uh, let's go uh, have a drink at a bar in Surrey Hills. Yeah, let's go. Got a little nightclub. There's a new wine bar opened in Merrickville. <laughs> Why don't we just step out over there for a little while? And that's the cupboard under the stairs where you've got the six-pack of wine. And don't, and don't do everything at once. That's always been my key to survival. Like a lot of people will say, take the laundry and fold it up, and then just carry the whole stack up to their room. Well, don't do that. Like just, Then you get up to your room, and you have a whole stack, and you set the stack down, and you got to resort the stack and put it in the proper drawers and hang it in the right places. Just take it one item at a time. Like, all right, first, socks. <laughs> and then take all your socks up, put them in, you know, by name. You should name your socks. <laughs> That's another way to make sure you don't lose them in the dryer. <laughs> you always know who you're looking for. Oh, my God, where's Joey? Oh, there he is. Oh. Do you think they get lost because people haven't named them and they're upset? 
Westworld has taught me that everything has a slight bit of consciousness and they want to be recognized. Huh. So, <laughs> so name your socks, name your underwear, take your shirts up. I'm not saying one shirt at a time. You can take all the shirts up at once, but only the shirts and go back down. This is also your exercise program. What sort, of name would, what sort of name would you give to a pair of underpants? Oh, I, I go with, you know, classics, you know, Skitty, Mark, <laughs> Stan, which is like Stain, but I took the eye out. <laughs> I think you should give them names with a bit more dignity, like George and Harold. Probably I should, but that's not, that's, I went more with like, you know, what do they look like? Kind of. <laughs> it's much easier to tell them apart. They look very much the same. That's I probably think, racist. I think we should write, rewrite Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief to Tommy Dean's stages of insanity. First becomes <laughs> first comes denial. Then then comes the naming of socks. But you start noticing things like my socks. This is terrible. Uh, but in a diverse world, uh, my my socks are very much um, right wing evangelists. They're just all white. It's really disappointing. Mm. Uh, so I really have to get some socks of color. And some female socks in there. I just really need to diversify my sock drawer. What's a female sock? What is that? How do you know the difference? How do you know the gender of a sock? Uh, oh man! Because they, uh, they, they're, they're willing. They're, on the way, on the way from Warringah to Hornsby, they're willing to ask for directions. Yeah, you know, silk socks. You know, everybody's got to have some. Everyone's got some sort of, you know, cross gender. Like I, I'm currently wearing these sort of a, uh, a uh, new sort of spandexy. Boxer briefs, underwear is my, my sort of sexy touch. They're very sliding. <laughs> well, why do you um, need a sexy touch living alone and unable to leave the house? Well, you, nobody's allowed to, you're not even allowed to touch yourself. That's all the advice. Wash your hands and don't touch your face. So yeah, I just, yeah. My advice is that you just have to keep your hands away from yourself, make your underwear one size too tight, and add some <laughs> slide to it. And then with proper <laughs> hip movement... A lot of fun to be had as I'm delivering all the stuff up and down the stairs. Every step, a little shiver of anticipation. Well, you're getting a lot of exercise that way too, aren't you? That's what I'm saying. A lot of people getting locked down, getting locked out, forget to do the big things. You know, drop stuff. Drop stuff and pick it back up. That's, my, <laughs> that's, my, that's like touching your toes, but with a purpose. Yeah. Like toe touches are redundant and stupid. But if you like kind of pack of chips, oh, I dropped my chips. Reach down, get your chips. Pick, oh, chip slipped. Yeah. Reach down. Or you, or you drop a pair of socks on the way up the stairs. Oh, sorry, Roger. You know? Sorry, Roger. Where's Jerry? Oh, there he is. Okay, let's go. You two, come on. Quit pulling around. Where's Sally? <laughs> it just keeps you aware that, you know, we're, we're not alone in this. I think that's the problem with isolation is that you forget. Yeah. That you aren't alone. You know, we are creatures of, of tribes. And, and my tribe now is a 10-pack of underwear and six socks. Yeah, yeah. So looked at through the right eyes, the whole house is alive, isn't it? It's alive with character. Yeah, and, and it's not even important to, you know, they don't all get along. I've mentioned that. You know, the toaster's an asshole. <laughs> you know, he knows that. We just all get along. You know, we, you know, we work around it. You know, the kettle is lovely if they're a little bit, you know, emotional. Wine's... All the time, you know, the microwave, uh, a little bit in, introverted. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's the secret. The secret is just every object, give it a little personality, get along, you know, rearrange the chairs. Who wants to always sit in the same spot at the dining table? Yeah. They don't. You don't. Move them around. 
Which appliance do you think is is closest to revolt? You know, closest to achieving sentience and uh, and therefore uh, trying to make a, a bid to kill you? Uh, the mixer, without a doubt, the tabletop mixer is uh, definitely first off. It feels like it's the most important appliance in the house. It definitely has a superiority complex. Uh, that's annoying. Uh, it has a variety of attachments that I do not use, but yet somehow it gets attached when I'm not looking. Like I mostly use the paddle beater, but then the next thing you know, the dough hook is suddenly on there, looking a little sharp and dangerous. Yeah. Wire whisk, one minute. Next thing you know, it's attached the meat grinder, and I'm a, I, was, I had to put the meat grinder away, get it out of its reach. Yeah. It'll have your hand off. And then the pasta, the pasta maker. But, you know, I think the pasta attachment probably not as scary as I think. I think you know, it looks like it has a purpose, but never really gets used by anybody that I know. Uh, plus, eggs are at a premium at the moment, so very difficult to make pasta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, you need eggs. Hey, have the shops got stuff in there, or you still got the toilet paper shortage like, like we have? Well, it's one of those kickbacks. Toilet paper has made a reappearance. Uh, but now pasta, flour, and and grains are all gone. Meat mm. continues to stay scarce. But I think some of this, and this is the problem, you try to make rules to make it fair for everyone, and there's just corruption inherent in the system, always. And so we, and I, I believe you may have done this in Australia, but many states, uh, the great state of Illinois being one of them, has made it such that the first two hours of opening for the grocery store are exclusive for senior citizens. Yep. So then all the senior citizens can get in and do their shopping first. Then when the not senior citizen mm-hmm. citizens arrive, uh, there's nothing left. And you know <laughs> what we have to do? We have to go out into the parking lot and buy the stuff we want at inflated <laughs> prices from a bunch of old people who have stalls out of the back of their cars. <laughs> Maga senior. The only thing about it that's helpful is that all of them are parked very close to the front of the store. (laughs) (laughs) Tommy, we will see what the week brings, but uh, say hello to Jeremy, Sally, and all the other socks, and we'll see you next week. Be good. There you go. That was Special Letter from America with Tommy Dane. And there'll be another Letter from America with Tommy Dean next week. You're listening to ABC Radio Sydney.